All right, well, if you're here this morning, um, you need to know something, uh, the most important thing, the, the main thing, what we are here to do, Grace Church of Rancho Cucamonga, is we are here to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're here to do. And so we sing about it, we proclaim it, we read about it, and I want to tell you just straight off the bat what it is. The good news that we preach and by God's grace, we'll continue to preach, is that Jesus, God's Son, lived, died, and rose to save sinners. That if you are a sinner, that is Jesus, this news is for you, that he has given down through the ages to us this morning to spread to you that if you're a sinner, you have offended a holy God, and you are deserving of his righteous wrath. Now that's bad news. But the good news is, is that God desires to save sinners through his son and that Jesus came for sinners like me and you who do not deserve and could not deserve the grace of God. You and I need a substitute on Judgment Day. We will stand before the living God on Judgment Day. And we need someone who can pay our penalty. We need someone who can be our righteousness. We need someone who can be our champion and advocate for us, and that is exactly what Jesus Christ came into the world to do through his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension. He's alive right now. We believe that. That's why we rejoice and sing. And so everyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ right now is reconciled to God, forgiven all their sins, promised an eternal life in heaven. And if you haven't come to Jesus Christ, you can put your faith in him in repentance not anymore trusting your own goodness, not anymore living for yourself, but you can trust in Jesus Christ and experience the great salvation that God has promised to everyone who comes to him. This is what we're doing this morning. Jesus is alive. This is great news. And so we rejoice in the salvation he brings. If you haven't come, now's the time. This message that I kind of briefly shared with you just now, has come to us because of something that happened many, 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 many years ago. If you're a Christian this morning, it's because someone continued the plan that Jesus kicked off in the text we're about to read. Now, would you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3? And in this section... We're going to see the time, the, the moment that Jesus begins, kind of a next phase of his public ministry, where he chooses the 12. I'm sure you've heard of the 12 apostles. Their names are sometimes the names of churches or cathedrals or schools. Uh, their names are well known. In fact, some of you may have one of the apostles' names. If you have a Peter or a John or an Andrew, if you know someone whose name is that. That is the name that is given here to some of these apostles. Uh, these are well-known men, and you've heard of them. I'm sure you know something about them. And in our text this morning, we see how Jesus, in continuing his public ministry, now chooses 12 men to expand his work as Messiah, as the one who has come to give the message from God to the world, his message of repentance, the message of the coming kingdom. He's now enlisting some men to participate in his redemptive plan. So we're going to see a little bit of how this is happening and learn some lessons from what Jesus is doing. 
I want to first point you to 3, 6, chapter 3, verse 6. See that in your Bible. And if you recall, this is the section where Jesus has a little bit of a confrontation with the Pharisees. The Pharisees are, are shocked that Jesus would heal on the Sabbath. Jesus is compassionate. He heals this man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. That's the kind of Savior Jesus is. He cares for hurting people. The Pharisees, however, all they can think about is how he's violating their man-made rules. And in chapter 3, verse 6, it says this, that the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. The current leadership of Israel, the Pharisees, and you'll also see the scribes, uh, are rejecting their king. The king has come. He has been sent from heaven. He is the Messiah that's being offered to Israel and to the world. And here we see that the Pharisees really want nothing to do with him. In fact, they're willing to team up with the Herodians uh, to make sure that he gets eliminated. They want to destroy him. What we see here is that the current leadership of Israel is a corrupt leadership, a failed leadership. The ones that were intending to lead, uh, lead Israel had actually misled them and led them into a path of corruption, of legalism, self-righteousness. And so we see very clear, Mark is putting on display here in this chapter that the current leadership of Israel has no right to be in leadership. And so Jesus is coming now, and he's confronted them. They've rejected him. And now what Jesus is about to do is, is to establish a new leadership, uh, someone else, a new group that can lead Israel, uh, someone else that could be his people, uh, the leaders of the people of God, the new people of God that Jesus is about to institute as he launches his church. You see in verses 7 to 12 that he's surrounded by all these crowds, and we realize after reading through that and getting to the section we're at now that he's not actually going to work through the crowds. Uh, the crowds know about him, but they don't know him. They, they're obsessed with him, but they don't really love him. They want his power, but they don't want his message. And so Jesus is not working with the crowds either. He's not going to work with the current leadership of Israel. They've disqualified themselves. He's not going to work with the crowds. They don't really uh, want him. Instead, we're going to see here that he's going to choose 12 men. And these men, uh, we hear in Matthew 19, will be... Uh, in the restored Israel ruling over the 12 tribes from thrones. Matthew 19 says that. Jesus speaks of that future. In Revelation 21, verse 14, uh, the future is described. The new Jerusalem, these men's names are inscribed on the foundations of that city. And so these men, as we're going to see, these ordinary ragtag men are going to be elevated to an unbelievable position in God's redemptive plan to carry out God's purposes in Israel at this time and to spread his message and to establish the foundation of the church. And this is so remarkable that it has a lot of uh, stuff for us to learn from. I want to read the text, and then we'll start working through it little by little. Verse 13, and he, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the, name, gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, 
and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. And that's what we're gonna, where we're going to stop this morning. For us to kind of get a feel for what this text is communicating, I think it is good to spend a little bit of time unpacking who these guys are. Again, I think you've heard of them, but I think by looking into them a little bit, we can see what, in fact, Jesus is doing. Uh, and so look with me at these, these 12. Let's start with the first there in the list. He's always at the front of every list that's ever mentioned in the Gospels, the list of the apostles. Peter is there at the front. We see him. He's called Simon. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. If you know anything about this man, Simon was a little bit more on the brash side, more talkative. Uh, he was the one who did everything big, including his failures. And if you read through the Gospels, you see Peter failed big. I mean, he had some good successes, but he also had some major failures. And uh, Simon was given this name Peter. You see that there. It's a nickname. It wasn't his actual name. His actual name was Simon, uh, but Jesus kind of gave him a new name, Peter. And that's the name that is remembered throughout all the ages. It's the name that Jesus gave to him. And a fun fact uh, the name Peter in Greek, it sounds very much like the word for rock. You've probably heard this before. And Jesus is talking about building his church. He calls Peter uh, the rock. And he's mentioning that Jesus, or he's mentioning that Peter is going to be kind of like a rock on which Jesus will build his church. It's almost as if that Jesus wants Peter to be a little more stable. He wants him to be a kind of foundation that he's going to be strong like a rock. It would be like, just to put it in like English terms, it would be like naming someone or Nick's naming someone Rocky. I'm going to call you Rocky. A strong name. It's going to be a name that reminds me of the, the strength of a rock. Well, Peter had to kind of earn that name a little bit because he didn't start out that way. He was unstable, up and down. Uh, but by the end of his life, he is certainly a rock. And then we get to James and John. James and John... Uh, called the sons of Zebedee. In fact, Zebedee is mentioned all through the Gospels. It's almost as if the writers expect us to know who he is, but we don't know much about him except for he's a fisherman, and he probably was a, sec a successful fisherman because he was known to the high priest, and we know that in John, the book of John uh, mentions that little detail. Uh, Jesus renames them as well. You see their little nickname there? He gave them the nickname Boanerges. That means sons of thunder, and I've heard that could be, uh, might be better understood. That he's calling them hotheads. Uh, James and John, you're the hotheads. You're the sons of thunder. If you remember the story of James and John going through that Samaritan town and the Samaritans are not doing what they think they should be doing. And you remember what James and John, they come up to Jesus and they say, hey, I got a really good idea of what we could do to the Samaritan town. Let's call down thunder from heaven, lightning, and let's destroy these people because they're not receiving you. And Jesus has to calm them down, calm them down. And so these guys get the sons of thunder nickname. Uh, Jesus, I guess, is in the business of giving guys nicknames. Uh, uh, it's almost as if he's given Peter the name. Uh, hey, Peter, you got to live up to being a rock. That's why I'm going to give you this name. And it's almost like to James and John, he's given them a nickname to remind them of what they're not supposed to be. Don't be so hot-headed, you sons of thunder. Uh, nicknames. I, I love the feel, by the way. When you kind of read through this, it's almost like this feel of these guys that Jesus is called to himself, that have gotten to know each other, and Jesus has been giving them, he gives them the, these nicknames. I mean, I, it almost brings me back to uh, my time playing sports uh, throughout high school and college, and you get these tight relationships with these friends. Um, nicknames just start to abound. 
Uh, I couldn't share all of them with you. But these nicknames just start to come up, and with a group of guys, it's often a form of affection, right? You start calling them by the nickname. We had this, this guy on our team. He's new to our team my junior year, and he's 6'10", skinnier than me. Yes, yes, skinnier than me. Hard to believe. Yes, he was actually skinnier than me, and 6'10", so stretch me out like six more inches. And this is this guy, and uh, we go on a team retreat at the very beginning of the year, and it turns out he's desperately afraid of snakes. He's just terrified of snakes. He's worried he's going to see a snake around every corner. And so uh, guess what his nickname was? We started calling him Snakes. The rest of the year, it was Snakes. We didn't even call him by his first name. It's, hey, Snakes, pass me the ball. This is what guys do. I, I'm all, I read through this. I get some of this, this feel, and especially as you go through it. These guys are in this together, ups and downs, infighting, struggling through things. And Jesus is their leader, and he's got this, this group of guys, and you know, he almost sense this affection. In fact, we're going to see in verse 13 that Jesus had a great affection for these guys. It says he desired them, this, this, this group of men that he called to himself. He, he loves them. He wants to be with them. And there's this camaraderie where they're giving each other nicknames. Jesus is giving them nicknames kind of to teach them how they ought to live. Uh, we get to Andrew. Andrew is called Peter's brother. He's, he's quiet. We don't know as much about him as the others. Uh, when we do meet Andrew, he's often bringing people to Jesus in kind of a one-on-one way. He's just saying, hey, I think we met the Messiah. Let's go talk to him. He never does anything that huge. We get to Philip. There's not much info about him. Uh, all we know is he's from Bethsaida, and that means he's probably a fisherman, uh, just like those other three. Uh, and so these guys probably living in, or not probably, they all lived in the same area. They were all fishermen, and so they probably all knew each other, and it's probable that they grew up together. And so there's this deep bond uh, that was even existing with these four men. You get to Bartholomew. Uh, it's also probably a nickname. The name Bartholomew means son of, that's what Bar means, son of Ptolemy. His actual name recorded in John chapter 1 would be Nathaniel, and he was probably one that was a little more educated when we meet him in John chapter 1. He apparently was totally familiar with the Old Testament because he's surprised that Jesus comes out of Nazareth. In John chapter 1, verse 45, Philip comes to uh, Nathaniel. He says, we found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus um, commends Bartholomew for receiving him and having faith. He calls him a, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. He talks about here now Matthew. Uh, Matthew, he, he's recorded in chapter 2 of Mark as Levi. It's his other name. He's a tax collector. I find it amazing that this guy gets welcomed into this group, even though he was one that was known to be a thief or at least known to be greedy and take money above and beyond what he was supposed to take. Uh, Thomas, uh, we know Thomas because of uh, what happened at the end of his life, poor guy. What do we call him? Doubting Thomas, the guy who doubted uh, that Christ was, in fact, resurrected and, and doubted it was him. Uh, we get to the next guy, the uh, James, the son of Alphaeus. We know virtually nothing about him except that in chapter 15 of Mark, verse 40, he's called James the Younger. That word younger in Greek is literally, it's micros, and it could be the small one. Um, it could be another nickname, uh, James the Shorty, James the Smaller James. You know, you got more than one James, you got to distinguish. Well, he's the short James. Uh, I guess that's what these guys started calling him, James the Younger, James Micros, James the Short Guy. Uh, then you get to Thaddeus. Thaddeus, um, not fat 
Thaddeus, as my kids thought as I read this to them the other night, Thaddeus. Uh, he's also call, called Judas, not Iscariot. It's almost as if he, um, he, he got confused. People started getting confused, and he had to give another name. Like, don't call me Judas anymore, because I'm not that Judas. I'm Thaddeus. And uh, he, in Matthew 10, goes by Lebius. And so he's trying to come up with anything that people can remember him by other than Judas. The name Thaddeus literally means breast child, which is kind of like saying mama's boy. Uh, Lebius means heart child. Both of these names indicate a kind of tenderness, uh, a kind of um, a soft-heartedness. And so Thaddeus might have been that, that kind of way. And these Thaddeus and Lebius were more nicknames that were probably adopted after Judas had betrayed him and kind of soiled that name. And we get to Simon the Zealot. Uh, Simon the Zealot. Zealot was a political sect that was well-known and it was widely feared Uh, this would be a guy that would upset political systems. He didn't want to fit into the political norms. And for him to be associated with Matthew, a tax collector, is quite a phenomenal thing because he would have been against any kind of established institution that supported Rome. And then we get to Judas Iscariot, uh, the most tragic life to have ever been lived. A person called to hear Jesus, to learn from Jesus, to follow Jesus, to preach on behalf of Jesus, who ends up defecting from Jesus, betraying Jesus. Uh, And Jesus says that it it would have been better if he had never been born. That is to say that he is now in hell. It's a terrible thing to think about. Judas Iscariot had all the opportunities, more opportunity than any living man ever had, and therefore his judgment is going to be greater. Do you imagine this? The, the fate of souls rests on people hearing the gospel, right? You can't, you can't come to faith unless you hear the gospel. Romans 10 makes this clear. There's no faith without the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. People need to hear the gospel. Now, you got the message, okay? You got the gospel message. You're Jesus. You've got the gospel message. Who are you going to entrust this precious message to to ensure that it spreads throughout the world? These guys? These guys? Mama's boy? Fisherman? Tax collector? A political zealot? Really? Uh, That's what we're going to do? This is amazing. That when we're thinking about Jesus beginning to replace the current leadership of Israel and establish his own leaders who will lead the church, he picks these guys? It's hard to believe when we start to think about it, and yet at the same time, it it gives us some courage because we go, okay, if he chose them, well, maybe he could use me too. In fact, one of the things we, we are reminded of as we read who these guys were is how Jesus always works and even works today and how God has always worked. Has he always picked the strong and powerful? No. The mighty, the eloquent? No. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm just going to read it to you, starting in verse 26. He's writing to the Corinthians. He says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble, of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low 
and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You know why he chose these guys? So that no one would point to these guys and go, wow, look how gifted they are. Look how strong they are. Look how wise they are. That's why the gospel spread so quickly in the early church. No, that's that's never how God has worked. He always picks the weak. He always picks the worldly fools. He always picks those who would be despised in the world. Why? So that no one can point to anything except the work of God. It clearly can't be the work of man. Here's your crew to change the world, Jesus is showing us in in this section. Here's your crew. They're not wise. They're not powerful. They're not of noble birth. They're weak. They're low. They're despised. They don't have the education that that you would expect them to have. They don't have the political prominence. They don't have the celebrity. And Jesus is choosing them. So it's obvious that it's his work and his power and not theirs. And look at there, verse 13. I love this. Verse 13. He went up on the mountain and called to him those who, whom he desired. Oh, man, how, how good is it to know that these disciples were desired by Jesus? It wasn't that he, he, he chose them with his nose plugged. Oh, man, I got to choose these weak people, but I don't really want them. But I guess I got to if I'm going to show my own power. No, it says he desired them. That these people came to him because they were desired by Jesus. And, and clearly we know that they weren't desired by Jesus because of their powerful positions, because of their internal worthiness. Jesus, out of his own loving heart, uh, Jesus, because of his big, great heart of compassion, has a desire for them. And he desires that people see his greatness and his glory. He desires that people see his power. And so he desires that these men be with him. And friends, I think that can be extended down through the ages, that if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ and you're following our Lord Jesus Christ in faith, you've repented, you've turned to him, you can be sure of this, that Jesus desires you. He loves you that deeply. He wants to be near you. And that is why, friends, that he came and lived and died and rose to reconcile you to God so that one day you can perfectly enjoy his presence for all eternity. Jesus desired them. Uh, He chose them. He picked them out. There were all kinds of crowds, but he picked these guys. It's a reminder, isn't it, of the fundamental reason why anyone would ever become a disciple of Jesus Christ is not because we desired him first, but because he desired us that he calls us, that he loves us first. Uh, He could have picked anyone in these crowds, and Jesus chooses them. And there's a sense which each one of these men should be saying, why me? I mean, why do you love me this way? Because it's amazing. Uh, John 15, verse 16 reminds us of this truth that Jesus is telling them again. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I chose you, disciples, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So he desired them. He called them to himself. And then it says he appoints them. He's given them an office. What's he appoint them to? He appoints them to the office of apostle. That word apostle means sent one. Uh, The word has the idea of this message is given. It is not to be tampered with. 
but it is to be spread. And your official position as an apostle is to be a spreader of the message that I give you. There's going to be more next week on this. We're actually splitting this section up into two sections just for sake of time because there's so much good stuff here that I want to unpack. But we're going to move on and kind of uh, a ring out of this text a little bit about what we can learn by what Jesus is doing. He chooses 12 men to replace the current corrupt leadership of Israel. He chooses 12 ordinary men rather than trying to work through these crowds. What's he doing? What can we learn about this? Uh, We've got three lessons from what Jesus is doing here. Three lessons. Number one, Jesus is not impressed by human power. Jesus isn't impressed by human power. This is clear because those in power are the very ones he rejected. The ones who were the Pharisees who kind of controlled and even used their authority and power to abuse the poor and the vulnerable, Jesus rejects them. And down to a man, through the, when you look at the people he chooses, he is intentionally avoiding choosing people with power with popularity to move his mission forward. He's not choosing them. He's intentionally choosing ordinary people. Jesus isn't impressed by the human power structures. He's not impressed by the same things we get all excited about, people in high positions and celebrities and politicians. And and we think that's the way that the, the mission can move forward. If we just had some more power in high places, And Jesus totally eschews that way of thinking. He doesn't need the powerful. He's not going to work that way. Human power is not going to move this mission forward. We don't need, he didn't need business tactics, entrepreneurial skills. Those weren't going to be the answer. Leadership techniques weren't going to do it. Political force, celebrity influence cannot move the gospel forward one inch He doesn't need this power, true power, that moves the gospel forward, that really results in effective evangelism and effective discipleship is supernatural. And it comes through being with Jesus, as we see right there. He calls them to be with him so that they might be with him. The only power we have is the power of Jesus Christ. Any other power that we try to tap into to grow our church and to build our church into something worth noticing is a false power that will result in false success. I remember a friend telling me that uh, he was saying pastors shouldn't go to seminary where they learn the scriptures and they learn to study and they learn theology. They, They shouldn't go there. Rather, they should go to business school. Because at business school, you get to know the real tools that are required for running a church. You agree with that? Is that the real stuff we need? Leadership technique? We need a little more business acumen? Friends, if we think this way, This is a profoundly dangerous idea for the church to adopt. Because as soon as we start walking away from the power of Jesus Christ 
because we've been allured by the power that the world has to offer, we've actually just begun to kill ourselves as a church, spiritually speaking, to grab onto power that is not power, to try to press the brakes, but in reality we're stomping on the gas pedal. Real ministry, where lives are actually changed, and hearts are opened, and minds are instructed, and the Spirit is moving, is accomplished by the Word of God and the Spirit of God working in and through the Word of God. That is how we live here. That is what we intend to do. Jesus wasn't impressed by human power. That's why he chose these men. That's why he chose ordinary men, and that's why he only chose 12 of them. And that's our second lesson. First lesson is he's not impressed by human power. Second lesson we learn here is that Jesus focused on the few. He focused on the few. You see that again in the contrast that I think Mark is intentionally showing us. In verses 7 to 12, we have this picture of these swarming crowds. And you could say, well, Jesus, why didn't you, like, like Napoleon, controlled the crowds to accomplish what you wanted to accomplish? Start a revolution. Overthrow the government. Jesus had, obviously, the wisdom and the smarts and the ability to make that happen. The crowds were willing to follow his every command, if he were just to call them to do something like that, they were swarming him. And if they got a little bit of a taste of his power, they would have followed him into battle. They would have done whatever it took. But Jesus didn't want to work through the crowds. He wanted to work through 12. Those of you who are teachers, you know that 12 would be a tiny classroom, right? It'd be an ideal classroom. Why? You could focus on the students in a different way, couldn't you? You got 40 people in a classroom, you kind of have a difficulty knowing where people are at and what they need and what they are, uh, where they're at in their learning. Uh, but you have 12, and you can actually know them. Uh, a 12 meant he could know each one of these guys. 12 meant he could bring them where he wanted to bring them. In fact, it's been noted that 12 is about the right number. If you want to travel by boat, 12 is a perfect number. You can jump on a boat and travel somewhere. There's a little bit of a, a level of intimacy in 12 guys that you can't get if you're trying to work with crowds of thousands. You try being close-knitted with a group of 1,000 people, it's going to be much harder. And so Jesus is working with 12. He's, he aims small. When I first started ministry uh, down in Fallbrook, uh, I started in, in June. Or no, I started in May. Uh, in my youth group, it, it, this little Baptist church I was at, uh, I had 11 kids in the youth group. That was May. By June, I had three. Eight of them had graduated, <laughs> and they moved out of the youth group. I started with three. And I remember going to this group of other youth pastors down there, and we used to get together like once a month and talk. And I must have been belly aching about the fact that there were only three in my youth group. And the youth pastor of some big, massive church with this huge, popular youth group, I remember him saying, he said, every small church is trying to get big, and every big church is trying to get small. I thought, huh, that's a good point. In other words, he as a big youth group with hundreds of kids showing up every Wednesday night was wishing that he could have a small group of men or young men to, to invest in. And they were always struggling with how are we going to break this up so people can actually notice each other, get to know each other. His point is this. Size is alluring because it looks good on paper. Uh, but when it comes to Really knowing people and doing ministry, there's a different dynamic when there's a small group. There's an intimacy. There's a connectedness. 
uh, that you can have with 12 and with smaller groups like that that you just simply can't get when you are part of a big, massive crowd. This is what Jesus knew needed to happen with these men. I want to just think about this. Let's, let's think about this. Meditate on this with me. Jesus knew that for his disciples to be equipped, he needed to single them out, draw them to himself, and spend focused time with just them. Right? They needed that, and he knew they needed that. If these guys got lost in the crowd, they would not have been equipped to do this work that God had for them to do. I find in this a very important ministry principle. You see it? You're a disciple of Jesus, right? Jesus knows his disciples need to be known. Jesus knows his disciples need to be cared for on an intimate level. Jesus knows that when his disciples are making stupid decisions, they need to be corrected. When they're doing good, they can be encouraged. There's an intimacy in that. Jesus knew that's what they needed. Do you, friend, let me ask you this, do you know that's what you need? Do you, as a disciple of Jesus, understand how deep your need is for people to know you, to be in your life, to be asking you good questions? I mean, what would happen if you attend church every Sunday and no one really knows you? Oh, they know your name. They know where you work, how many kids you have. What if they never know you? What's going on in your life, the struggles you're experiencing? No one's speaking directly to your specific needs. No one available to help you in your times of tragedy or grief. No one to hold your hand through the times of isolation and loneliness. I mean, that's not the way God intended his people to live. It's not good that man should be alone, even in Genesis, prior to the fall. This is a reality. You need to have relationships where people know you. This is an implication of this text. Jesus knew that his disciples needed to really be known. This, by the way, we're going to have a church membership class right after. This is why we do membership in part. When you become a member of a church, you know what you're doing? You're saying to all the other members, and you're saying to all the leaders, you're saying this, I need to be known. I want you to know me. And I'm going to open up my life to you. And I'm going to ask you to care for me, correct me, encourage me, hold me up, pray for me, because you can't do it alone. Friends, you cannot do it alone. Let me ask you this. Are you lost in the crowd? Are you getting the kind of discipleship you need? I'm not going to say this is an optional thing because I don't think it is. I think every Christian, the Bible not only here but all over the place, uh, points to the reality that Christians need to be discipled, cared for, shepherded, loved, and known. Does anyone know you? Really know you? Who knows your story? Who here knows your heart? Who here has eaten at your table? Who here has wept with you? Who here has laughed with you and rejoiced with you? Who here knows that struggle that you have that you have a hard time talking about it? We have a desire here to create a church membership by the grace of God that loves each other, knows each other, cares for each other, rejoices with each other, weeps together, 
we actually put it in our very own affirmations of commitment that we are committing to weave our lives together with one another. Friends, you were made for commitment, but are you living in the shadows? Are, are you living in the dark? Does anyone really know you? I dare say I don't think you can grow into a mature Christian without people really knowing you. Now, you know, a second implication of that is, right, the other side of the coin, what did Jesus, why did he choose 12? Because he understood that he needed to know them. They needed to be known. As a church, we got to think about that too. You're called to help people follow Jesus. That means, I think, an implication of how Jesus did his ministry. If you want to be a faithful follower of Christ, you need to help others be faithful followers of Christ, right? That you must seek out people to know and to care for them. I'm a pastor. Yes, I think God in his sovereignty did a lot of work in my heart to bring him, but humanly speaking, because there was a man who focused in on me, got to know me, asked me hard questions, prayed for me, encouraged me, and helped me. And I pray that there are many people here that said, I might not ever be a pastor, I might not ever be in leadership, but one of the things that I am going to do, Lord, if the Lord gives me breath in my lungs, is I'm going to invest in other people to help them follow Jesus. Just as Jesus chose 12 so he could know them, so also we need to know each other to help them follow Jesus. Who do you know? Who are you seeking? Who are you pursuing? Who are you helping? I remember reading the, the, a story about a funeral of this man who he wasn't a pastor. He just served as a greeter in his, year for, in his church for years and years. And when he died uh, at his funeral, several other men stood up and shared how this man had not just been a, a, a nice face in the lobby, but that he had actually pursued uh, people, pursued other men and met with them and prayed with them and read Scripture with them and, and encouraged them and always had a smile on his face and always ready to encourage several men stood up and said i wouldn't have been a christian if it wasn't for this man and several pastors got up front and shared and said i'm a pastor because of the investment of this layperson who cared about me enough as a young man to invest in me are you investing in people like jesus if you were to have a funeral and you're there in the casket who's standing up and saying this person made an impact on my life by the way, let me say this. I'm thrilled at the way this is happening in our church in so many relationships. So encouraged by the stories I hear of, of, of men who want to get with other men to read the scriptures and pray, of women getting through, getting together and, and reading through the book, some books in the Bible and praying for each other and the text message threads that are going on where people are encouraging each other because we actually want to be known and want to help each other follow Jesus. Thrilled by what God's doing there. I'd say, fathers, start with your wife and your children. Invest in them. Older men, you need to get a young man in your life. Don't hold back from us. We need your wisdom. Older women, same thing. The young moms and the young singles around here, they need older men and older women to reach down and help just as Jesus did. Young men, if you aspire to make an impact, you want to have a ministry that matters, learn from Jesus. The, the proof of your calling will be in the lives you've invested in. 
Jesus focused on a few and trained them up. The third lesson here is this, and we'll end with this. Jesus, in choosing these 12 men, embraced the mess of ministry. Do you want to be in ministry where you're actually changing lives by the grace of God, the Spirit's working in you? You're actually seeing people growing up and maturing in Christ. You're actually seeing it happen. Light bulbs going on around you because of the way God's working in your life. I know if you're a believer, that's what you want. You want to be used by God to see those things happen. Well, there's a mess ahead if that's what you want. A glorious mess. But it is messy. I mean, think of what Jesus got himself into. When he chose these men, hot heads, hard hearts, unbelief, doubt, stubbornness, infighting, blabbermouthing, cowardice, denseness, full-on backstabbing. That's what Jesus got into when he invested in these men. You want to have a ministry that impacts actual lives. Let me tell you, you will get your hands dirty. Don't try to jump in the water without getting wet. You can't. You want to invest in a life? People are sinners. I remember John Piper telling the story of him getting into ministry, and he told his dad, I want to go into pastoral ministry, and his dad wrote him a long letter telling him why he shouldn't. <laughs> it's hard, he said. There will be people who hate you. There will be people against you. There will be people that backstab. There will be people that gossip about you. As I've heard pastors say, sometimes the sheep bite. By the grace of God, I, I'm not saying that because this congregation in particular has been difficult. You are a joy to me, and I love serving you. But I do say this, that if you want to actually impact lives, you're going to be helping sinners conform their lives to the Word of God. It's not easy. There's starts and there's setbacks. There's ups and there's downs. There are people who are uh, misunderstanding, uh, sometimes hard-hearted, sometimes there's no commitment, sometimes there's secret sins, sometimes there's doubt, sometimes, yes, even there's personal betrayal. And when you dive in, these things may happen to you. But friends, can I call you to follow Jesus' example here? He got into it. He, he went into it because he knew what he wanted to do. He was on a mission from his Father to spread the gospel investing in these men and through them the church would be established and thousands even millions from them down through the ages would end up coming to christ ministry's people work are you in the game the gospel baton has been handed to us we must not fumble it and so we need to be known and we need to be knowing people the fate of the salvation of souls rests on whether they hear the gospel Friends, you know the gospel. Who are you going to entrust it to? Who are you going to invest in? Who are you going to pass on to? Christ wasn't impressed with the powers of man. He wasn't focused on the crowds and making this grand influence on all these people. At first, at least, he focused on the few and he embraced the mess of ministry. And by his power and by his grace, he impacted millions of lives through the ages. Friends, we're weak. We're ordinary. We're nothing. 
We are fools for Christ's sake, but by his grace, we can be used to pass on the gospel to many, many others. And my prayer is that we do it together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, you are alive. You are at work, and you're working in us and through us. And we ask for help because we know that the mission of the church is to make disciples. And as we watch you making disciples here in this text, help us to learn from you. To not be focusing on our own strength and abilities, but to focus in on the people around us you've called us to love and care for, to get messy with people that we might see your gospel advanced in our, in our day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.